have more on this program in a moment. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. With the Solace Radio Fall Winter Fun Drive in full swing, our listeners are stepping up to the plate in support of 15 years of broadcasting the word of Adonai, God to the world. For many, they're comfortable writing a check rather than other methods. We completely understand your concern. If you would like to send a check to keep Solace Radio broadcasting to the world, changing one heart at a time, We are grateful and blessed to have listeners who love us as we love you. To donate via the mail, you can send any amount to Yander Media, Post Office Box 610, Monta Vista, Colorado, 81144. Solace Radio is not a 501c3. We believe for that reason, all support and donations truly come from the heart. Your support can be of any amount. Or, if you would like, visit www.solaceradio.org. The mailing address is Meander Media, Post Office Box 610, Monta Vista, Colorado, 81144. May God, Adonai, move your heart to support Solace Radio today, so we may continue the ministry to the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. Shalom, and thank you. When I think of end times, I think that it's his end times. See, other people think when they hear end times, they they associate that with something negative or something sad. But it's the devil's end times, and it's our beginning times. The Bible says that they're birth pangs, not death pangs. Yes? So this time is going to come to an end for him. This is why he so desperately does not want the Lord to come back. Because when he comes, he goes. Yes? And you know, uh, basically, uh, basically what I do is um, in my life with friends and family, basically is just encourage. And this is a time that the body needs a lot of encouragement because time is short. And, and this is the time, you know, it's like a, a, a ball club that plays a hundred and so, some odd games. And then they get in the playoffs and they get through that and the pennant and all that good stuff. But, you know, it's, it's the World Series that counts. You're in the World Series right now. And you've got to play your heart out because time is short, yes? And this is what the enemy doesn't want you to know. Although you can see, the president of Iran coming to New York City, my town, coming to the United Nations to address them, and we're going to spend millions and millions of dollars guarding him, and his platform is bow down to Iran or we'll make you bow down? Sound Hitlerish to you? I just don't understand the whole thing. Did you see when the, uh, they had the top um, terrorists from Al-Qaeda and Hamas and Hezbollah at a funeral. And our code is that you cannot shoot somebody at a gravesite. I'm thinking, but it's so convenient. <laughs> and we're passing law- laws in this country that we have to treat the terrorists in a certain manner, hoping that when they capture our soldiers, I mean, you ready? 
stupid is as stupid does. I mean, it's very nice and it's very political, but, you know, I'm waiting for Prince Charming to show up on a white horse and take me away. Are you kidding? They're dismembering our soldiers and dragging them through the street. You think they're going to go, oh, you treat our guys like... You've got to understand the mindset. Only the Lord could change the mindset. But if the Lord doesn't do it because their heart is so hard, how hard was Pharaoh's heart? And how many chances? And you know what one would say? I get this question. I'm sure you've gotten the question. How could God harden his heart and then punish him for a hard heart? You ever get that question? You ever give an answer? See, if God did not harden, which means to strengthen his heart, then he would have been forced, as any other normal human being, to let them go. God, in his infinite mercy, gave him a choice. With that type of plague and the power of that plague, any normal human being would have said, Go! Do you understand now? In Judaic thinking, God gave him a strong heart so he would come to his sense and go, and then say, What am I doing? God gave him more of a chance to have a choice. But when you're dealing with religious fanatics who are really, it's not just misguided, it's demonic. You better eat them for lunch before they eat you for dinner. <laughs> it's just the way it is. What are you going to do? It's, it's very complicated, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Tell me, moms. Somebody tries to take your baby from the stroller. What do you do, moms? Sit there, pray, or grab the baby? Stop giving me that holy song and dance, please. Okay? I'm not interested in it. It's really rough out there, but it's coming to a close. This is the final chapter. This is the countdown. This is what you've been waiting for. The disciples were jealous of you. They were looking to this day, Acts 1, when are you going to restore the kingdom? You're living in the day. So exciting. You're living in a great day. Um, I was sent here today by the Lord to try a case. Is there any attorneys here? <laughs> how, could a, how could a synagogue not have an attorney? That's unbelievable. Where's all legitimacy? We got our doctor. We need an attorney. But I was sent here to try a case. God will be the judge. You will be the jury. And at the end of the case, when I finish presenting the evidence, I'll ask you for a verdict. God will pass sentence. Let's see, what are we missing? We got the prosecutor, we got the judge, we got the jury. What do we need? A defendant. Yeah, we need a defendant. Now, I'm going to ask you a question before I start. How many people have not heard the term, and hold your hands up high just so I can understand what's here. How many people have not heard the term replacement theology? Raise your hand. Okay. How many people have heard the term replacement theology? Of the people, leave your hand up for a minute, of you guys, if I asked you to explain it, how many could explain it? Keep the hands up for those who can explain it. Hands go down for those who can't. Okay, that's not bad. We are in a messianic congregation, right? Well, it's a very important doctrine to know because although people don't understand that they move in it and they approach it more as a philosophy, a religious philosophy, there are individuals churches and whole denominations that move in replacement theology and so replacement theology is going to be our defendant okay now before we get started i'm going to define replacement theology and for the purposes of folks that get the cd i'm not going to go to the scripture verses but i'm going to cite them replacement theology is the teaching 
that God who cannot lie, Numbers 23.19 and Hebrews 6.18, and who never changes, Malachi 3.6 and James 1.17, has canceled the, quote, everlasting covenants that he made with Abraham, Genesis 12.17 and Genesis 22.15 through 18, Isaac, Genesis 17.21 and Genesis 26.24, and Jacob, Genesis 28.10 through 15, Genesis 35.9 through 12. And their descendants, not just them, but their descendants, that's me, him, his descendants forever, Genesis 17, 7 through 8, I'm giving you scripture to refute replacement theology, and has transferred those promises to the Gentile church. That's basically what replacement theology is. All the promises that God made to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, he has rejected, taken them away, and given them to another people. Now, interestingly enough, sadly enough, what quote-unquote, what the Gentile church did to Jews, Islam is doing to the Christians. Islam is operating in replacement theology. They said the promises that God made to the Christians, he's rejected them. Yes? It's basically what they're saying. See, some people don't know what they're saying. You ever meet people that just don't know what they're talking about? They don't know what they're saying. Like, well, I believe in the law, but he nailed the law. I, I don't know what they're saying. They don't even know what they're saying. Sometimes they don't mean to say what they're saying. They don't mean, but I think they should say what they mean and mean what they say. As the Gentiles, those are non-Jews, were pouring into the body of Messiah. This is the first century, pouring in, yes? Peter was like, what's going on? This isn't, this is a Jewish thing. Yeshua, you told us to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The woman called herself, you called her a dog. I mean, this is just a Jewish thing. You know, us 12, you know, with Jews, the 120, Shavuot, 3,000, tens of thousands, Acts 21, Jews. I don't get it. And then it hit, and they started pouring in. Say, amen. <laughs> That's a good thing. So they're pouring into the body of Messiah, and the holy community needed to arrive at a position for the non-Jewish believers in Messiah. That's Acts 15, 1 through 29. If you want to know, that's called the Council of Jerusalem, where Shaul, Paul, met with Kepha, Peter, and they discussed, what are we going to do with these non-Jews in the faith? This continued, Acts 15, 1 through 29, continued to be the pattern for the holy community until approximately, what would you say? About 300. Yeah. Actually, if you look at uh, Barnabas, uh, uh, Irenaeus, they wrote some funky letters too. You can, you can review them in any encyclopedia. But this is when it really hit. This is when replacement theology came into its own. 311 CE, Emperor Constantine, anybody ever hear of Constantine? Decided to make, quote-unquote, Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. You know how ridiculous that is? It's like walking up to somebody and saying, well, because you're in the empire of Macon, being that there's 400 churches, you're a Christian. Right. We have Christians that aren't Christians. How are you going to make non-Christians Christians? He decided to make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire forcibly, sound familiar? Islam? Forcibly uniting church and state. In other words, everybody who was then born into the empire was also born into the church. Being part of the Roman Empire made you a Christian. This became the Babylonian mystery religion in Rome. Because everyone born in the empire was also born into the church, Gentiles soon became the ethnic majority in the church. There were just more. There were just so many more. In 325, Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea, which none of the bishops were invited. They invited about 1,200 bishops. These were elders, leaders of different congregations all over the world. 
but not a Jewish bishop was invited. At which the church's new official position, this was the church's official position in 325. As far as the church's relationship to the Jews, it was published with Constantine's signature, and I quote, We ought not, therefore, to have anything in common with those Jews, for the Savior has shown us another way. I mean, all he had to do was read Matthew 5, 17 through 19 and a bunch of other stuff, but that would have been a good place to start, Constantine. And consequently, in unanimously adopting this mode, we desire, dearest brethren, to separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews. How can they, meaning the Jews, be in the right? They, who after the death of the Savior, have no longer been led by reason, but by wild violence. Look who's talking. As their delusion may urge them, it would still be your duty not to tarnish your soul by communications with such wicked people as the Jews. Hello, anti-Semitism. You want to know where it was birthed? It is our duty not to have anything in common with the murderers of our Lord. And then Catholicism was birthed from there. And sadly enough, let's face it. I mean, I I can read you some more stuff, but I just don't want to belabor the point because it it just sickens me. This was the Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers, page 54. You can find the quote. The Council of Nicaea effectively took the birthright from Israel and gave it to the Gentile church. In 325, the church replaced Israel. This is what happened gone. The Jews were scattered. There wasn't a Jew in Jerusalem by 135 after the second great revolt. There were few Jewish believers scattered around. They started to die off. And in order for their families to continue in Christianity, they had to continue as a Gentile, not as a Jew, according to the Roman Empire. Replacement theology is particularly detestable to the Jews because it is the theology that many government and religious leaders have used for over 1,700 years to excuse their attempts to exterminate the Jewish vermin from the earth. It says that God who hates divorce, Malachi 2.16, has divorced his bride, Isaiah 62.5, and married another, Hosea 2.19. I'm giving you scriptures because they refute what this is saying. He hates divorce, she's a bride forever, and she's betrothed him forever. Now either Constantine is telling the truth and people that operate in replacement theology are telling the truth, but if they are, guess what? What I find so detestable, not only did it give birth to thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of Jewish people dying and being murdered, but what I find detestable is replacement theology calls my God a liar. And that's what I have a problem with. Of course, if God could lie, then we're most pitied above all people. Boy, have we been duped, huh? I guess the world is right. If you move in replacement theology, you give credence to that philosophy. So... I'm going to call the defendant to the stand, replacement theology. And I'm going to ask replacement theology to put their hand on the Bible. Why bother? His father's a liar. Yes, it's impossible for Satan to tell the truth. So why bother asking him to put his hand on the Bible? That's silly. And the defendant is allowed to bring forth some evidence. So the defendant is going to bring forth a parable. Can you imagine? Does Satan ever use the Bible? Doesn't it say he'll give his angels charge over you? Satan knows the Bible very well. He was the highest cherub, his right-hand man, and he knows how to use it. That's why we better know it and understand what it means. So Jason, if you would put that parable up, this is the evidence that replacement theology is going to try to use. Mark 12, 1 through 2. You'll find it also in Matthew 21 if you 
like to read that gospel, 33 through 46. You'll also find in Luke 20, the parable of the vineyard owner. This parable, sadly enough, has been used to support replacement theology. Although it's not overt, it's very covert. But it's interpretation over the years, and I've looked at many, many study Bibles and interpretive Bibles, and they use this parable. Now, by the very definition of a parable, one has to understand that it's an earthly story with a heavenly message, and it's figurative. It's metaphorical. It could be used simile. It's, it's figurative in its very definition. So every parable is highly symbolic. So it's impossible to interpret a parable literally by the very definition. If it's a parable, if it falls under the heading of a parable, you cannot interpret it literally. Okay? So it's highly symbolic. Now, vineyard, the word, is used 62 times in the Bible. 40 times in the Older Testament, 22 times in the Newer Testament. 62 times. And of those 62 times, vineyard is used literally to mean what? A vineyard. Yeah. A vine with grapes. Take the grapes off, eat them, crush and make wine. Non-alcoholic, of course, right? Right. <laughs> It's used literally in the Old Testament 31 times. That will give us nine times it's used figuratively. 31 times literally, nine times figuratively in the Old. That adds up to 40, correct? And in the Newer Testament, it's used nine times literally and 13 times figuratively. And all 13 times of its figurative use falls in this parable. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Thirteen times you'll see the word vineyard in those three. That's it. In the whole New Testament, the word vineyard is used figuratively in this parable. That's why this parable is so important. Not only is it the only one that Yeshua used to predict his death, he speaks of his obituary in that parable. And I'm digressing, but it's a very important parable because if it's misinterpreted, and what do we know? misinterpretation and misunderstanding leads to all kinds of evil. I'm constantly fixing things here and other places because of misunderstanding, miscommunication. What's the problem in relationships? What do you hear? Husbands and wives, miscommunication or no communication or misunderstanding or somebody brings something up and 30 years ago, what? Now, there's something very important before I present the evidence on this parable. And that is five keys, only five. I've mentioned them here before. But if you're going to be a student of the Bible, if you're going to study the Bible, there's something called hermeneutics. Very, very fancy term. You know what it means? What does it mean? That's what it means. What is the scripture? Now, some things are very obvious. Love your neighbor. It's very obvious. But some things are not so obvious. And sadly enough, the unstable screw it up. Peter said that in his letter. He said, Shaul is hard to understand. And the unstable misinterpret him constantly as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, I haven't gotten it all figured out, but I know there's five keys to be able to understand and interpret scripture. What does it mean? And when it's not literal, you've got to use these five principles. You must. You can't say, oh, the Lord told me. Give me a break. The first key is take Scripture literal until you realize that it can't be taken literal. 
okay? Dreams are usually figurative. Jacob's dream, you want to get close to God? Go to Lowe's and get a big ladder? Not exactly. Figurative. So take things literal. Step one. Step two, take scripture in context. I've said this how many times? Eight billion times? At least. I can't just read a scripture. Yesterday, somebody gave my children a scripture. I couldn't just read it. I said, guys, I've got to read it in context, especially from kings. Give me a break. What king are they talking about? What war are they going through? What's happening in their life, in their ministry? What's happening in Judah? Is it Judah? Is it Israel? You follow? Then I could sort of understand. Taking it in context is very important. Three, Scripture proves Scripture. It's called internal evidence. Scripture must prove Scripture. That means there must be a harmony of the Scriptures. Four, before truth is realized, all seeming or apparent scriptural contradictions must be reconciled. You can't just take one and go, well, I don't know what that means, so I'll throw it, all, throw it aside. It's an irreconciled discrepancy. And when somebody asks you, I, I, don't, I don't know what that means, I, well, forget it. If you're a detective and you go by gut feelings, you're not going to solve a lot of cases. You see that in TV, that's not the way it operates. Because once you go with your gut, you will only pick out the evidence that lines up with your gut. You've all done that. You've got a theology. And then you read the scripture and you define it according to your theology. Because you're going with your gut. And five, and it's not going to apply here, but there's near and far, or the law of double reference in prophetic scriptures, where they come true at one point, but they have a fuller prophetic expression later, like Joel 2.28. It happened, but it's going to happen to a greater dimension and a greater proportion. The law of double reference or near and far prophetic scriptures. The only ones we're going to look at is the first three because those are the only ones that are applicable in our context. Number one, accept the literal meaning of scripture. I told you in this parable, you can't accept that the vineyard is a literal vineyard. It's figurative. So in order to understand this parable, you have to figure out what the vineyard is. Number two, take it in context. What's the context? Why is Yeshua telling this parable? He starts off, if you read verse 1, and he began to speak to them in a parable. Did he just kind of walking around going, hey, I got a parable for you. Sit down. He's answering a question. If you look back a couple of verses, these chapters weren't here. God didn't say, now Mark, turn to chapter 12. It was just a continuous voice of God. Do you know why they put chapter and verse in? So I can have a job. Otherwise, I can't tell you now, turn your Bibles to Mark 12 to just break it up. And they tried to do it the best way they could. But clearly, you have to read this Bible as a universe from start to finish. There was a question posed in chapter 11, verse 28. They began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? He's answering their question. They said, what authority do you have? Who? We didn't ordain you. We didn't put smircha on you. We didn't do, who are you? What authority? So he's answering that question. That is the crux of taking it in context. And this is his answer, according to this parable. Just as the vineyard's owner's son has the authority above all the tenants, so too Yeshua has the authority above all the present religious leaders. That's what he's speaking figuratively here. And number three, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Listen to this. A word, phrase, or concept should first of all be studied in light of its use in the passage. Vineyard. We have to study it in light of this passage. 
And then in light of its use in other passages of Scripture, some passages are not as clear as others. And some truths are more implicit than explicit, meaning hidden than obvious. Scripture is always its best interpreter. These truths that are more implicit should always need to be understood of the light of those that are more explicit, never the reverse. So in this parable, the vineyard is very implicit. It's not explicit. If it was, they wouldn't be using this and its interpretation to promote replacement theology. I ask people everywhere I go, how did we miss 700 scriptures? Real easy. (laughs) It's simple. If the Jews were replaced, why would we grab anything Jewish? If I played word association, I said law. Uh, Old Testament. uh, uh, Jews. uh. I know. I know you've been taught. I know what they teach at the seminaries. I know what the interpretive Bible say. They're wrong. Any pastors here? (laughs) So we have to use this figurative sense and go back into the figurative use in the Older Testament because there it's very explicit, incredibly explicit. Mark 12, 1 through 12. For the most part, the parable is fairly straightforward. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat underneath the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Sound like a bunch of meanies, yes? I I don't blame you for not liking him. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. There it is. Replacement. Yes? Makes sense? That's how they interpret it. Have you not even read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? Interesting. Son is Ben and stone is Eben. This became the chief cornerstone or the capstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 is being quoted. And they were seeking to seize him and yet they feared the multitude for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Now here's this, just this religious crew and yet they feared the multitude and you know the whole multitude was Jewish. So what's happening here? Why are they fearing Jews? Why are Jews fearing Jews? Because it's not all-inclusive, obviously. You could tell that right by that scripture. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that. So they left him and went away. Now, the owner of the vineyard is who? God. That's a no-brainer. Everybody agrees on that. And the owner's beloved son is who? And the owner's servants, not tenants, servants are the prophets. Sure. One in the head, Amos, got beat. Isaiah got sword in half. Jeremiah got imprisoned and then killed. So you want to be a prophet? What about the wicked and the new tenants, though? They teach the wicked tenants of the Jews. And the new tenants, church. That's what they teach. And that's replacement theology. That's how this has been explained over the centuries, how Christianity has replaced Judaism. Jason, you got that, um, that slide, that next one? So this is how replacement theological perspective. The owner of the vineyard, God. The vineyard, the kingdom of heaven. The wicked tenants, the Jews, the owner's servants, the prophets, the owner's son, Yeshua, and the new tenants, the Christians. So the Jews were kicked out of the kingdom of heaven. 
and the Gentiles poured in, and that's it. Game over. This is my contextual interpretation. I still agree with the owner of the vineyard. I absolutely disagree that the vineyard is the kingdom of heaven, because then they'd have to explain me. The wicked tenants are not the Jews. They're the present religious authorities. You follow? Prophets, still the owner's servants, the owner's son, of course, Yeshua. And the new tenants are the new. See, God always works new means renewed. See, what I practice is a new Judaism. What you practice is a new Judaism. It wasn't new. God didn't come and do something new. He was renewing something old. New just means renewed. It's an everlasting covenant, but it was renewed in his blood. The laws didn't change. God didn't change. Messiah didn't change. The Holy Spirit didn't change, but it infused us to walk out what we were asked to walk out, but did not have the power to walk it out. Do you follow? Nothing's changed except now we're empowered. That's why the Holy Spirit is so very important. That's the way I interpret contextually. Now, I've got to give you evidence. I can't just say the Lord spoke to me in a dream, can I? Although it's very popular these days. There's many people that I know that work for non-profit organizations, and I don't mean profit this way. I mean profit this way. Mark 12.1 says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat underneath the winepress. If you go to Isaiah 5, I think you'll see something quite interesting. Remember I told you there's figurative uses for the vineyard in the Old Testament. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. Concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on Fertile's Hill, and he dug it all around. Sound familiar? And he removed the stones and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. That's exactly the same thing. And he expected to produce good grapes. What are good grapes? Obedience, thanksgiving, love, worship, service, righteousness. He was expecting to see righteousness. He birthed this vineyard through Abraham. And he pruned this vineyard in Egypt. And he planted her in Canaan, which became Israel. And he was expecting to see good grapes. Make sense? Sure. Now it says in Isaiah 5.7, if you go down, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is... Anybody got a Bible? Is what? Is that hard to figure out, the figurative sense? The vineyard is the house of Israel, not the kingdom of heaven. Every single Old Testament figurative usage of the word vineyard is absolutely, positively, unequivocally Israel. Not 90%, not 99%. Every single figurative use is Israel. Isaiah 3.14, it says, my vineyard, Israel. Isaiah 5.1, 5.3, 5.4, 5.5, and 5.7, Israel, my vineyard. Isaiah 27.2, a vineyard of wine redeemed Israel. Jeremiah 12.10, my vineyard, Israel. Ezekiel 19.10, Judah, a vine in my vineyard, Israel. Is that clear and concise based on the evidence that this figurative use is Israel? The chief priests... And the scribes and the elders were the religious leaders of the day. They occupied a God-given, now hear me, a God-given place. That's why Yeshua says in Matthew 23, they sit in the seat of, and then what should you do? Not just because they're in a place of authority, because what they're saying is good. They're just not doing what they say. 
He says, do as they say, don't do as they do. They're moving in hypocrisy. They occupied a God-given place of authority over the temple, over Jerusalem, over Judaism. The priests had charge over the tabernacle and the temple. You can see that in Exodus 28. And the Sanhedrin's authority was established. You can see that in Exodus 18, Numbers 11, and Deuteronomy 17. In the days of the Master, in the days of Yeshua, the priesthood of Israel had become incredibly corrupt. Some things never change. It was dominated by the Sadducees and controlled by the wealthy Romanized power elite. Even Caiaphas, Caiaphas, don't you remember when he tore his garment? According to Leviticus, he couldn't operate as a priest anymore. Why should he have operated as a priest? He wasn't the Aaronic priest. Who was the Aaronic priest? Check his lineage. That's why he was able to baptize Yeshua and said, there's a change taking place. It's going from this priesthood to that priesthood. And the order of Melech Zadik. Yeshua is teaching here that a new order is being installed and inaugurated. Somebody once said to me, yeah, but Jeremiah 3 says something about God divorcing. I said, keep reading. Keep reading, old student. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Jeremiah 23, same context. If you read 1 through 8, he says, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back, a righteous branch. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, I will put shepherds after my own heart over them. Yeshua said, Moses gave you a writ of divorce only because you were putting so much pressure. But don't you know what the Word of God says? What God puts together, let no man put asunder? It is not in his heart. It happens. But it's not in his heart. It's not in his makeup. So he's saying there are new tenants coming. New tenants that are taking over. And who are those new tenants? Matthew 19, 28. It says, and Yeshua said to him, Truly I say to you that you shall have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. He's not on his throne yet. There's still a little G-O-D of this world. But... He's coming soon. And he says the Son of Man will sit, physically sit, on his throne in Jerusalem. When? Exactly 75 days after the Day of Atonement. Zechariah 12.10, they will look at him and look as one mourns. When do they mourn? On Yom Kippur and they will see him. You count 75 days from there, 30 days of reclamation. 45 days of restoration, sit on his throne. What is 75 days from Yom Kippur? The 25th of Kislev, Hanukkah, baby. That's when he's going to rededicate the temple. His timing is absolutely, positively, impeccably perfect. And he says, I will sit on my throne, and you shall also. Remember when Peter was saying, man, I haven't seen my wife. I haven't tended to my business. What's in it for me? Didn't he say that? I think he was a little irate. You know, sometimes we say that to God. I've been coming every Sunday. I've tithed once or twice. You remember? And then he says, you shall also sit upon the 12 thrones judging. (sighs) What a position. You think he asked ever again? What's in it for me? In the Messianic era, the 12 disciples will sit. Now they have the keys to the kingdom. And guess what? By association and by ingrafting and by regrafting, You have the keys to the kingdom. You have a place of authority if you're willing to take that authority and take dominion. 
Well, these are my closing arguments. I just want to make three points for you to take home. It's hard to believe I went through that. The replacement theology explanation is illegitimate. Illegitimate. It is high time someone stood up and came forward and replaced replacement theology with the truth. Replacement theology is a lie from the pit of hell that should be detestable to all believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it makes God out to be a liar and makes the Bible just another book of legends and fables. If you promote this doctrine, that's what you're declaring whether you realize it or not. If God can renege on his first four covenants, Abrahamic, five three-accounted covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, the Israeli covenant, and the Davidic covenant. If he can renege, then why can't he renege on the new covenant? Don't you understand? If that's his character. If he can renege on the first four, then we who are new covenant believers, Jeremiah 31, 31, and you'll find it there mentioned only. And who does he make the new covenant with? The house of Judah and the house of Israel. Baby, you're ingrafted. Whether you want to face it or not, that's just the Bible. Then those who believe in the new covenant don't have a leg to stand on if they're purporting replacement theology. God's great name, I take it personally, not because of the persecution, not because according to statistics there should be 250 million Jewish people alive today, but there's less than 14 million. Not because they've been murdered and hacked up and they've suffered at the hands of Christians way more than they've ever suffered at the hands of Islam. But that's not what I take personally. What I take personally is my God's fame and reputation, good name is at stake. That's what I take personally. He promised to bring the Jews home and restore them. Daddy doesn't break a promise. He promised they would not vanish from being a people. Right after he makes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, he makes this astounding promise. He says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order should depart, if you don't see the sun and the moon and the stars before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall cease. Every single society and civilization tried to nail them. 1948, post-Holocaust. Do you know how weak and frail they were after the Holocaust? Do you know what they existed on? Their ration of food was four ounces of margarine, one quarter pound of dried meat, and two small potatoes for the week. Seven powerful nations, 120 tanks with gunners. They didn't have one. 74 warplanes, navy ships. How did they win that war? Because when daddy makes a promise, he's going to come true. That's why the Jewish people should lift up your spirits. For if you're a Bible believer, you hold on to every promise in there. Satan is a liar. And the father of lies, it is impossible for him to tell the truth, and it is impossible for God to lie. It is not that the Jewish people have been replaced. Romans 11:1. 1, he asked the question. He's talking to the Romans. Don't you understand the context? Who are the Romans? Gentile believers. Who are the Hebrews? Jewish believers. You've got to at least know who the letter is being written to, for goodness sakes. He asked a question to a bunch of Gentile believers. I say then, has God rejected his people? Have they been replaced? That's what he's asking. He's asking, does God operate in the theology known as replacement? May it never be. For I am an Israelite. I'm saying this scripture 2,000 years later. And I could say it with conviction. Because I too 
am an Israelite. It was the corrupt religious political authorities of the first century Jerusalem that he replaced. The church has not replaced Israel. The church has not improved Israel. The church has not changed Israel. In fact, she's enlarged Israel. That's your commonwealth that you've been grafted into. Number two, how could this happen? The promotion of replacement theology. The notion that God could change his mind and divorce his wife. Just go back to Genesis 3, 4 and watch Satan lie. You won't die. Liar! How could you entertain his thoughts if he's lying to you every time? Directly goes against the word of God. He'll stop at nothing to prevent God's will and Yeshua's return. He does not want to end his reign of terror. The only way he gets kicked out of his position of authority is when Yeshua comes back. So what do you think he's going to do? Everything he can to prevent the return of Messiah. Replacement theology prevents the return because it puts Jews on one side, puts Christians on another side, and the middle wall of partition that was broken down He's been rebuilding ever since the first century, brick by brick. And you got to get that spiritual Humpty Dumpty off that wall and knock it down brick by brick. It's a lie. But he doesn't want Yeshua to return. People get saved. Does that bother him? You know what? Not everyone's going to get saved. So he still has dominion. What bothers him is the thought of being chained and in bondage. Yes, ma'am. He remembers the messianic prophecy back in Genesis. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That's yet to happen. John 14, 6, Yeshua says, I'm the truth. Matthew 23, 39, he says to the then, the Jewish authority, he says, you will not see me again until. Now, listen, I think Yeshua is the ultimate faith freak. I don't know about you, but I think the guy had some faith, yes? So if he said it, it's as good as done. That means they're going to say it. Somehow, some way, the new Sanhedrin that is being put together right now, they're already put together. They are going to say at a time very soon, Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he. He says it in Matthew 23. Yeshua says that Israel will say Baruch Haba. He said it, that settles it. There's 700 scripture references that support it. God has a plan for Israel. And because I love God, I embrace his plan. Colossians 2.15, Yeshua leaves when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, man. He disarmed them. You have that authority. You have that authority. As a born-again believer, God's DNA on the inside, you have that authority. Don't try to abuse it. Don't operate in unconfessed sin and think you're going to Rebuke, rebuke. You'll rebuke so much your rebuker will get tired. Lay hands on yourself and cast it out, then rebuke. The Lord told me there's, there's just, when, when, when the praise and worship team was playing a song about we grieved your spirit, there's some here walking in such detestable sin that's unconfessed and you think you're going to have any power? Why are you jerking around with God? You'll stay saved, I'm sure. But that's all you want? A ticket to ride? You might be here for a while. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display. Where? Who's the prince of the air? Yeshua. No, Yeshua is not the prince of the air. Who's the prince of the air? Satan. And when he ascended, where did he ascend? 
through the air, no? That's where he made the public display. He left like the spiritual terminator. And what does he say? I'll be back. I'll be back to crush your head. I'm leaving as the spiritual terminator. I'm coming back as the spiritual consummator. I'm holding all my promises. I'm bringing my people home. And I'm going to sit on my throne and rule and reign. Some of you don't have that on the inside of you enough. You just don't have it. And any little thing throws you. Just throws you. Smashes you around. Kicks you around. Picks you off. It's insane. Listen, you ready? It's okay to be afraid. Don't put on some act like you don't get afraid. You get afraid. It's okay to be afraid. Otherwise, you shoo into said over and over again. Fear not. It's okay. But you know where fear is a problem? James 4.17. When you don't follow through, then it's a sin. But to be afraid is not a sin. It's an erroneous teaching. But when you're afraid and you're shivering in your boots, if you still saddle your horse, that's courage. You hear? Keep pressing and keep going forward. The time is short. Yeshua is coming back to save believers. Romans 13, 11. He's coming back to banish the unholy trinity. Revelation 19 through 20. He's coming back to rule the world. Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. And he's coming back, most highly overlooked, to deliver and rescue the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Zechariah 14. Question for you. When Yeshua returns, Zechariah 12, 10. And the Orthodox Jew in Israel recognizes him as Messiah and says, Baruch Haba. Does he have to give up his Judaism to get saved? Interesting. So why does he got to do it now? You know, there's something about being a Jew. Even if you're secular, even if you don't practice, there's something about all the persecution and all the junk all people went through that you just don't feel like giving up your Judaism. And when I got saved on the Mount of Transfiguration, the first question I asked, even far from God, it was Yom Kippur, 1989, October, first week in October. So far from God that I went to rent a car, I didn't even realize that it was Yom Kippur. That's how far away I was from God and far away from my Judaism. Because I thought Judaism stunk. I was like, man, if we're the chosen people, you need to choose somebody else. Because we ain't doing so good. I just didn't like the idea of being Jewish anymore. And I got saved in Israel. And the first question I asked, the very first question, do I have to give up being a Jew? And the answer I heard from the heavenlies was, I didn't. That young man from the synagogue, is he here today? Okay, good. There was a young man from the synagogue here last week, and he came up and he said, I really, really enjoyed this. And I said, good, great. We're here to bless. And he said, no, I really, 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 and I could tell God was really working him. And I pulled him aside and I said, look, don't let anybody tell you you can't be Jewish and believe in Yeshua. You tell them they got to be more Jewish to believe in Yeshua. It's the ultimate Jewish thing to believe in Yeshua. The church will say, you want Jesus, give up Judaism. The synagogue will tell me, you want Judaism, give up Jesus. And I say, I'm giving you both up, man. I can and will and do. I can and will and do. Nowhere does it teach different. Last but not least, three. There is a grave danger with replacement theology. If God has rejected Israel and the Jewish people, then we who believe in Yeshua should reject everything Jewish. Do you understand? If he's rejected the Jewish people and his new tenants, what's the point of the feast? What's the point of Shabbat? What's for, do you understand? That's why when you tell people, oh, feast, and you see people doing a little feast, or somebody says to me, oh, my God, my pastor went to Israel, and he's got a shofar over his desk. 
Well, it's a bunch of rams that have a shofar over their head. So what? It's more than just blowing a shofar. It's more than just celebrating a feast. It's so much more than that. Yes, start somewhere. But don't end there. Don't just end there, man. There's a grave danger. And that's why you're trying to talk to people about these things. And they don't want to hear it. Because it's associated with things like this. Replacement theology. And since they've been replaced, why should I deal with anything Hebraic? What's the point? God is a bridge builder. Satan's a wall worker. Don't let him keep building up this wall and prevent Matthew 23, 39 from coming to fruition. Remember Romans 11, 11th verse. Paul was so explicit. He said, I say then, did they stumble as to fall? Meaning, can they get back up? Did they? He said, of course, may it never be that they stumble without getting up. But by their transgression, by Isaiah saying they were blinded, by their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, when people ask you, why didn't the Jews believe? If they did, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. They would have put him on the throne then. But God had a plan in his infinite mercy, in his tender loving kindness, in his overwhelmingly loving heart. He blinded some so he could keep pulling in and pulling in and pulling in for God is not slow in his promises. But don't miss the last statement in Romans 11.11. Salvation could come to you to provoke them to jealousy. You have a mandate. That's why when Dean Hahn teaches on Hebraic roots at his church of 7,500 people, they come out in droves. When Greg Hirschberg teaches, because I'm a Jew with an agenda. He's a Southern Baptist pastor. So somebody asked me this week, do you get upset that people don't really listen to you, but if they start talking about it? No. No, in fact, my job is to build bridges with them, to get them to get it so they can preach it so people can receive it. I don't care how it gets out there. Let it get out there. That's why I go to the pastor's meetings. You think I go because I want a Danish? God is calling us all back to a renewed Judaism where there is personal, practical holiness. Yes, Romans 6.13. I know, I was talking to my intercessor this week, I know when the kids get sick, you want to lay hands. You don't even believe it's going to work anymore. You keep reading Acts, you don't even want to read it anymore. Where's the power? I know that's what you want. And we've fallen so in love with God because we don't want to hurt his feelings by saying, God, what's going on? Too much cancer, too much sickness, too much poverty, too much divorce. The numbers are staggering. United States of America the most religious country in the world, according to Baylor University. 15 million people survey. And 85% of Americans say they believe in God. 40% of those 85% are born again. And only 6% of those 40%, so 2%, believe that the Bible is infallible in the actual Word of God. 2%. Half of the born-again believers don't really believe in Satan or a literal hell. These are actual statistics. I'm not making this up. And so you wonder, you wonder where the power is. Two things are going to happen. We're going to get replugged in to our Jewish roots for sure. We're going to get replugged in. We're going to unplug the Christmas tree and plug into the olive tree. And then once we plug in, once we plug in and the juice starts flowing, we'll come back to a practical Holiness, not a positional, but a practical 
holiness, where truly we're repenting. And for those who want it, watch out because the light's shining. It's going to shine. Don't turn out the light when it shines. God is not angry with us. He wants us to clear and clean out our tabernacle so he can come in. There's just not enough room. You can't serve two masters. This is what's happening in the last days. And in the last days, not just the two witnesses and the 144,000, but there's going to be some power-packed believers. Power, real power. Not hoopla, power. And when it hits you, you're going to love it. So I rest his case. What do we say about replacement theology, guys? You need to, you need to go out and think about it. You need to deliberate a little bit. Guilty as charged. That's what I say. Replacement theology has to be buried. Don't let anybody you know move in it. God has a plan for his people. If he divorced her and he hates divorce, it's a major discrepancy. If he's thrown her out, then he's a deadbeat dad. And if he denies her, then he could deny us. Stand on what you know the truth should be. If I can get some of my prayer folks to pop over there, and if I can get the praise and worship team to come up, I just feel like there's a lot of people today here that need prayer. Physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. There's been some hurt. There's been some issues. Also, I want you to know that Beth Yeshua is a place that any time the praise and worship team are playing, you can come up to the altar and do some business with God. You don't need somebody to lay hands on you. Sometimes you just need to come. There's freedom for you to just come up. You know the story I told you, how they catch the monkeys in the South Sea Islands. They put a hole in the coconut just enough to get the hand in. They put a little bit of rice in the coconut. The monkey grabs the rice and makes a fist. He goes to pull out and he can't. The coconut is attached with a rope and they pull the monkey in, crack him over the head and he's done. It's real simple sometimes with sin. You just got to want to let go. Sometimes we don't want to. We don't hate it enough to let go. So we hold on and we say, go ahead, God, deliver me. How are you going to get delivered with a clenched fist? So the altar's open for you to do business with a God. Prayer team is over there. Rose, will you go over there, please? And they'll pray for you, whatever your need be. Your best bet is to probably let them not know what they need to pray for you for. Then you could really see if they're hearing, right? Why don't we stand up together? I'll just bless you with the ironic benediction. And then the praise and worship team will play. You are free to go. You don't have to hang around, but just if you would, if they're praying for people, it could be a serious matter. If you would, just maybe not have a loud, loud conversation inside the sanctuary today. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, the Saw Shalom, Yeshua. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Give him some heaven out there.